This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Welcome back, everyone. This is World to Win. I'm Toya from Boston in the International Socialist Alternative. We have an exciting U.S. special here today with three members of the U.S. section of the International Socialist Alternative, four if you include myself. You know, Biden has been president for over 100 days now, which is usually around the time where we start to really judge um, how our president is doing within those first 100 days. Um, and so we're going to talk to three members of the organization about the Shama Solidarity campaign, how Biden has been doing, the Derek Chauvin trial. Um, on Tuesday was the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. Um, so if you were at a protest or, you know, a memorial, let us know in the comments um, what was it like, um, you know, what were people talking about. We'd love to hear from you. So I want to introduce this exciting panel. First, we have Chris who is a member of Socialist Alternative in Minneapolis um, and was on the ground actually, you know, throughout um, the George Floyd rebellion. So um, hi, Chris, how, how have you been? I'm doing well and thanks for having me on the show. Uh, yeah, my name is Chris Gray. I'm an organizer in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And as Toya was saying, uh, we're just past the one year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. Uh, and I'm excited to talk more about what that's meant for the city and some of the lessons we can learn from that experience, along with uh, the Bessemer campaign and other things. Oh, yes, I forgot to mention the most exciting part, Chris. You were in Alabama, but we'll save that. We're going to talk all about that in the uh, the Amazon drive and everything. Um, so next we have Eric, who is a member in Philly. Um, he is one of the founding members of our Socialist Alternative Black Caucus, um, who also spent time actually in Minneapolis um, during the George Floyd Rebellion. Welcome, Eric. Welcome back, Eric. How have you been? I've been I've been busy uh, in Philadelphia. We've start recently started a community control to police campaign uh, uh, to create a body elected by working people to hire fire cops, negotiate with the FLP, the police union here in Philadelphia, and also to control the police budget. We also have several comrades that are involved in the Philly Free Palestine Coalition that have been leading all the marches and demonstrations in Philadelphia. They recently had 2,000, almost 2,000 people come out to their march. And the last thing is, there's been a, a rent control campaign that has been started in Philadelphia, and we have members involved that actually use Shano Sawant's office uh, excellent rent control legislation as an example uh, to the coalition, which they're going to be moving forward, building it, trying to resemble uh, what Shama's fighting for. So just been busy. You have been very busy, Eric, and I'm glad you mentioned Israel-Palestine. Last week we had a special episode, so everyone should check that out if you haven't, um, to hear from our members in Israel-Palestine. And last, we have Andy, who's a member of Socialist Alternative in Seattle, who's working on the Shama Solidarity campaign. How have you been, Andy? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well, doing pretty well. You know, lots going on out here. Um, very exciting times, especially as we head into the summer, uh, getting out and talking to people about uh, why we need to stand with Councilmember Sawant uh, against this right-wing recall. I'm so excited to have you all here today. Um, and so let's get started with our discussion. So I want to start talking about uh, President Joe Biden. We haven't really had a, you know, a, a full discussion here on World to Win about how he's been doing so far. So I'm excited to hear from everyone and what they think about his first hundred days. Um, you know, he came into office, of course, with multiple crises. The the biggest one being the fact that, you know, 600,000 people died from a pandemic. Um, and, you know, the U.S. has 
you know, manage to ramp up the vaccine rollout. I mean, in my state alone, we have, uh, you know, more than half of the adult population is now vaccinated. Um, but we still have a, a terrible economic crisis that we're dealing with right now. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, protections, the COVID protections federally with rent control, things like that. Well, not rent control. I wish it were rent control, but rent forgiveness during COVID are, are set to expire. Um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has forced the, the, the ruling class to take, you know, very large members, I'm sorry, uh, measures um, to deal with uh, the situation that we're in. And Biden, uh, you know, pushed forward a $1.9 trillion stimulus package. Um, but I want to, instead of, you know, just looking at the way the, the corporate media talks about how Biden's been doing, I want to take a socialist balance sheet on um, the, pres the Biden presidency so far. So, Andy, what's your take on the situation? Yeah, thanks, Toya. I mean, it is significant what the, uh, the vaccine rollout has achieved over the last several months um, in the U.S. It's expected that Biden's administration is going to announce today officially that over 50% of Americans um, have been vaccinated, which is obviously a significant uh, milestone. Um, that would mean over 165 million people being vaccinated, particularly over the last uh, four or five months, which is really huge. But one of the things I think that's significant as well um, is that we're starting to see a slowdown in the administration of the vaccine uh, versus its high point, which it was just above 3 million vaccinations a day in April. It's down to less than 2 million now, about 1.8. And it's unfortunately looking like that trend is going to continue, which opens up uh, you know, uh, some real problems in the U.S. in terms of um, whether or not we'll be able to achieve so-called herd immunity in the U.S. Um, as we go forward with these rates slowing down. And I think one of the significant things um, that's kind of contradiction in the situation is that the way that this, you know, this huge step forward in the vaccine administration um, was achieved in the United States was essentially taking elements of socialized, a socialized medicine system, which doesn't exist in the United States, obviously the, the most well-known awful for-profit healthcare system, possibly in the advanced capitalist world uh, exists in the United States. But the things that were uh, that got the vaccine progress as far as it has is things like being it being free at the point of use, uh, regardless of insurance coverage, uh, mass vaccination sites, um, even the federal government pro providing significant aid to manufacturers to actually turn their manufacturing towards the development of these vaccines. But yet at the same time, the Biden administration up to this point has resisted um, you know, they're now exploring a public option, the public health insurance option, but has resisted any sort of turn towards a more socialized healthcare system, um, which, you know, over the last several years has shown that the majority of Americans support. They can make it work for them when they need to, Andy. You know, when we when when uh, we need the healthcare system to work for us, we need medications made quickly. We need vaccines made quickly. Um, they're only going to do it, of course, as you mentioned, when you know it's absolutely necessary to save the economy or when they're going to be able to make huge profits off of it. But I want to go to Chris. Chris, it's not just the the vaccine and the COVID pandemic that Biden has had to deal with. You know, we've seen this huge economic downturn, and so he put forward this large stimulus. Package, um, package to try to get us out of it. You know, uh, as a construction worker, the infrastructure plan is something that I'm looking forward to. Is this something that's going to help get us out of this economic crisis? Yeah, thanks for asking, Toya. As a 
you know, when Biden was in Congress, one of the things, and gave his speech, uh, his first speech that he gave to the Joint House, he, he said, you know, one of the purposes of this was to try to restore faith in American democracy. And it's because on some level, there's a recognition um, amongst the ruling class and, you know, representatives of the ruling class, like Biden has been for most of his life, that their system's in crisis. Um, and they see this with the Bernie Sanders campaign and the rise of socialist politics and the, the rise of right-wing populism as well. And so I think that, you know, that Biden's um, stimulus and the other proposals that he's putting forward really reflect a deep fear that this pandemic, I think, exposed, but has existed for a long time. And U.S. capitalism has been facing profound challenges and problems that have just been swept under the rug. And the pandemic now has um, just added more fuel to that fire. But Toya, you were saying you're, um, you're a construction worker. And I think, you know, it's important just to look at, like, how much will Biden's stimulus actually build? And so in the U.S., there's there's 230,000 bridges that need repair. And that's, you know, in Minneapolis, it was actually about 10 years ago, it was very famous because a major interstate bridge fell down into the Mississippi River. And that provoked a whole discussion about the crumbling and decaying infrastructure um, in the U.S. because of what happened in our city. Biden's stimulus of the 230,000 bridges that need to be repaired, Biden's stimulus will only repair 80,000 of them, which is far short. Um, and many of these bridges are at the end of their lifespan. They're dangerous. Uh, the $2.25 trillion is a huge amount of money when you look at how little the U.S. ruling class and capitalism has spent um, over the la- you know, over decades. But I think it also, when you draw it out over 10 years, it's not um, as much, it's not up to the task of what they need to do. <laughs> It's only $225 billion per year. And we know that's almost the net worth of, that's a little more than the net worth of Jeff Bezos. And so if we needed to, by taxing people like Jeff Bezos and billionaires, we could do it in the 11th year and put more people back to work and hopefully build green infrastructure and the types of things that are necessary. And I think um, just one, another example of the size and scale of the stimulus is that uh, it, it only invests like, first, so to totally redo the U.S. water system which um, is really important because of crises like existed in Flint, Michigan, where a majority black working class city was poisoned um, because of budget cuts and a right-wing administration that ran the state. What they estimate is they need $66 billion to fix, um, or sorry, Biden's stimulus uh, gives $66 billion to fix the water system in the country. But what's estimated um, by folks who've studied this kind of thing is that they need $68 billion every single year just to maintain and upgrade the system, uh, water system to keep you know, people's basic needs met. And so it's a big move, I think, that Biden is passing these stimuluses that are talking about putting people back to work and talking about an infrastructure plan in relative to what they've done, uh, what both parties have done in the past. It's a large amount of money, but when you compare it to military spending, when you draw it out over 10 years and look at how much this actually means for the economy, it's far short of what's actually necessary to rebuild um, infrastructure in the U.S. and to get people back to work. And also, um, it's far short of what they're going to need to try to save capitalism. Uh, This is a crumbling system where billionaires are making record profits, and they can't even fix bridges and fix the pipes, and this will only be a drop in the bucket. I mean, Chris, what you described is ridiculous. What we need to fix our water in one year, they're going to give us to fix the water just in 10 years. But we need that every single year. It's absolutely insane. Um, but like you mentioned, the money is there. We can we can uh, fix our infrastructure. We can put people to work. And also the green aspect, I think, is so important, what you mentioned, you know, uh, um, 
rebuilding our infrastructure doesn't just mean using the old methods of of, of repair and and uh, we we could we could fundamentally change the way we're, we're building in this country. It's just, it's insane. I want to move on to Eric. Um, we haven't heard from you yet. And I want to ask you about the squad. Now, for those who, who aren't familiar with the squad, it's this group of um, left-wing Democrats. Um, the most famous one is AOC. Um, what has the, the role of the squad been um, during the Biden uh, presidency so far? So unfortunately, they largely have not been bold in their approach. They refuse to take on Biden on a number of issues. From since the beginning of January, they refuse to force the vote on Medicare for all, falsely believing in Pelosi and her lies that they'll might they they'll get $15 minimum wage, which we saw did not happen at all. We also seen the detention centers Biden bragging on national television that he's going to skirt state regulation on holding children by using army bases and federal uh, land that the army uses to house children. AOC, AOC and the squad have not really go against that at all. And the latest thing, student loans, Biden dropping student loans to zero. And But Eric, hold on a second. You just said that AOC is not um coming out against the the way that uh biden is going to hold children who are crossing the border didn't she get elected on the question of abolishing ice which is the the government uh wing that deals with deportations why isn't she coming out against this again exactly and she's not going out against it because Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and Biden sat the squad down and let them know that they are not going to go against their billionaire donors, they're not going to go against the prison industrial complex, and that they're not going to call for a mass movement that can actually fight back against the political establishment. And they know, and AOC said herself during the Bernie Sanders campaign, that her and Biden should not be in the same party. She knows this. And it's not a personal fault, right? Like, I'm not sitting here so happy that AOC is forced and the squad's forced in these situations. It's because the reality is that the Democratic Party is a graveyard for social movements. At the end of the day, one person cannot stand against a capitalist party, which is Jeff Bezos, Walmart, and, you know, those other people that benefit from the detention centers. I totally agree with you, Eric. It's, it, you know... These these uh, left wing progressives get elected on these, uh, you know, promises, um, but they don't really follow through in what is necessary to make sure that they happen. The movement building aspect that we talk about oftentimes in Socialist Alternative. But speaking of movement building, I want to, you know, take us back over the past year thinking about the George Floyd rebellion. We just saw um, some weeks back Derek Chauvin get um, convicted. Um, so, Chris, you being in Minneapolis, what was the mood on the ground, um, you know, during this trial and a little bit after? I mean, the mood, the mood is electric. Killer cops um, rarely even get indicted, never mind get convicted after killing people. And so, I mean, for the tens of thousands of people in Minneapolis and the millions of people who took, took part in protests around the, the world, uh, this is a huge win. And what it shows is that if you get organized and protest and build a movement, you can indict killer cops. The big fight now, though, will be to actually win systemic change. Minneapolis is a city that's run by the Democratic Party. They have a supermajority on the city council. And they made big promises last year that I'm sure people will remember. But since then, they've systematically walked back on those promises. 
And I think a lot of people understand that while it's a major victory, there's still a huge fight ahead of us. And what that'll take is a really relentless struggle that'll confront both um, killer cops and the racist, racist policing in the U.S., but also the Democratic Party and capitalism itself. Eric, so the the reason that we were able to see this victory, you know, that Chris was was describing was because of the movement, right? It wasn't because the Minneapolis establishment decided that George Floyd's murder was, um, you know, more grotesque or more unjust than any other murder, right? It was because millions and millions of people around the world, especially young people, hit the streets. But during the trial, trial, we saw the murder of Adam Toledo, a child in Chicago. Um, we saw Dante Wright. And then the night that Chauvin was convicted, we saw a young girl in Ohio um, killed by the police. And you know, you described the, the, what's going on in Philadelphia around the demands of defunding the police, but what are the strategies really that we need going forward to stop police brutality and to actually make gains in fighting racism? I definitely think that's the million dollar question. And really 29 million people have been constantly thinking about this question. And it's a conversation now to shift to long-term sustained organizing. And what do I mean by that? I mean building in our workplaces and our communities. People recognize protests are important, but protests are not enough. And that at the end of the day, while Derek Chauvin was without the mass movement, it would not have been possible, was found guilty, that Makia Bryant died the same day like you were talking about. And we need community meetings to have discussions about what's the next steps forward. And that means also pushing labor into the movement. That was the massive absence in the Georgia Rebellion, even though we saw really spectacular examples of labor solidarity with the black liberation struggle in Minneapolis, where Minneapolis bus drivers refused to cooperate with the Minneapolis Police Department in uh, arresting protesters. And I think another thing, an important conversation is happening because many people recognize that the tactics that we have used have not been enough or have been effective. And there's a cause to reject celebrity activism. And what I mean, and also corporate money, and what I mean is people like Patricia Cullors and Sean King have been getting into debates with Samira Rice, Mike Brown Sr., Lisa Simpkins, family members of victims of racist police brutality, saying that we do not need movie deals, we do not need book deals, we need actually organizations that can not only get justice for their loved ones, they're talking about organizing community, solving homelessness, fixing poverty, and that shows a really important example that we have to really get in our heads to reject corporate money and to put all our faith into the working class, particularly the black working class. Because at the end of the day, the George Floyd Rebellion represented that black working people want to get in a multiracial struggle against the police, against racist systemic racism, and actually against poverty at the end of the day. And I think at the end of the day, that means rejecting black capitalism, which unfortunately some are buying into with Amazon and uh, J.P. Uh, 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 J.P. Morgan donating billions of dollars to so-called uh, black entrepreneurial funds and actually embrace, embracing the black working class, which means embracing socialism and rejecting black capitalism, just like Fred Hampton always said correctly. 
I totally agree with you. And you mentioned, you know, the effect that labor has had on the struggle, specifically with the bus drivers in Minneapolis. But what we saw last week, too, in Palestine, when, you know, tens of thousands of Palestinian workers refused to go to work and we saw what led to a a ceasefire. But how can, you know, union members um, have an effect, you know, like when we say labor needs to get involved, what can union members do, um, you know, to fight against police brutality, in your opinion, Eric? I think the first thing that all union members can t- can do can talk to your fellow co-workers. Remember that the union is not some external thing. The workers are the union. And that means getting into political conversations about BLM, we'll be surprised about how many people are constantly waiting for the moment to have these conversations, especially with people that they know and work with every day. And once you're able to do that, going into um, the your leadership of the union or a general body meeting to put forth resolutions calling with solidarity with any BLM protests that are happening, solidarity with the black liberation struggle, and also to give material solidarity to say we will not cooperate with oppressing protests. And that's going to be a struggle in a lot of unions, but it's going to be an important one that we really need to have these discussions and debate about how, how can the labor movement get involved in the social struggle? Because it's not just about helping protests. It's also about reviving the labor movement. Because at the end of the day, that's how the labor movement can become really a giant in this country that it once was. And we're definitely going to talk about that labor movement um, in a little bit. But I want to go to Andy because, Andy, you know, you are currently residing in Seattle, um, you know, helping to defend Shama Sawant's seat. Um, she's going through a, a, a recall campaign right now. But one of the one of the reasons that she's being, you know, recalled is because of her involvement in the Black Lives Matter movement. Can you describe that a little bit more? Yeah, thanks, Toya. Um, so, yeah, I live in Seattle and two of the three charges right now that are being put forward against uh, Shama are related to her participation in the BLM protests last summer, in particular one in which she joined a and spoke at a march called by families of police violence in Seattle um, that went into the, the, the mayor's neighborhood, um, which the mayor is a former U.S. attorney um, and so has, you know, supposedly has her um, address protected. Um, the, the march did not actually go to her house. And, you know, there's been people who called that march uh, that said, basically, we, you know, we did, you know, Shama didn't lead the march. She, um, we asked her to speak. Uh, you know, we never pointed out where Durkin's house is. Nobody on that march to this day still knows where the mayor's house is. But that's one of the charges. And the other one is in, uh, related to the fact that during the, the course of the movement, um, there was, Shama participated in a uh, peaceful sit-in and rally inside of City Hall after hours when nobody was there and uh, caused no damage. And I think these are clearly, the fact that these are corp- incorporated into the, the three main recall charges shows that uh, this is all part of retaliation and an attempt to uh, criminalize protests um, in Seattle in retaliation for the Black Lives Matter movement and the other charge, which is related to uh, the campaign that Shama's office helped lead to build a movement to tax Amazon and big business to afford, to fund affordable housing and homelessness services. So I think it's pretty clear that, and then there's also other more direct connections that this is retaliation for that, including recently it came out um, that the actual ma- campaign manager 
of the recall uh, movement sent an email to the Seattle Police Officers Guild appealing for their officers um, to serve in plain clothes volunteering for the recall campaign. And just to put a little context, hopefully our you know the viewers realize the nature of policing in the United States. You know, it's much different. It's much um, you know they're militarized, um, criminalization of entire communities. Um, but the, the SPD in particular has been ranked, I think, 498th out of 500 in terms of accountability um, in recent studies. And was actually the Seattle Police Officers Guild was actually removed during the course of the BLM movement last summer by other labor unions from the Central Labor Council because um, the other organized workers and workers organizations felt that they had so much resisted any sort of accountability and policing in relationship um, to the demand for policing reform um, against racist police violence. So I think those are just, you know, I could go on forever about this really because it just is a right-wing movement and it is a retaliation for Black Lives Matter, but those are just some particular things that are pretty egregious that I think stick out. I had never heard that statistic of how low they were ranked for accountability, but it's inspiring to see other labor leaders standing up and, and saying, we don't want to organize with you um, because of the, the way you function and the way uh, you know policing is handled in this country. I want to shift back to Chris. Um, I can't believe I forgot to mention, Chris, that you were in Alabama. I mean, I was jealous that I didn't get a chance to go down. What an exciting campaign, um, you know, to be a part of something trying to unionize the most profitable country, um, sorry, country. He has as much money as a country, right? <laughs> Company in the world. Um, you know, people probably know that unfortunately they did lose the campaign, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't inspiring um, and helpful to the movement. Can you talk a little bit about what happened in Bessemer, Alabama at the Amazon warehouse? Yeah. yeah. I mean, working class people were bound to fight back against Amazon, and they have been doing it for quite some time, but I think it's not an accident that uh, we saw this union drive, and it's not an accident we saw it when, when we did. Uh, that you know, a year um, a year into the pandemic, where essential workers and Amazon workers have just been decimated um, by COVID nineteen, and they're already low. It's it's grueling work. It's absolutely alienating. Uh, your job is literally controlled by like lasers that tell you where to put boxes, and many people don't ever talk to their coworkers. Yeah, it's not surprising that people stood up and fought back. And it's not surprising they did it in Alabama, which is one of the states that's been dominated by an openly right-wing and bigoted administration uh, where, you know, it ranks amongst the lowest in terms of social spending, health care, access to housing. Uh, and it's a majority black workforce where there's a specific history in the South. And being in Bessemer, I think, was a really historic thing because it showed that um, working class people have tremendous power, even in red states, which is a whole feature of what we've seen over the last few years. And red states are states where the Democratic Party establishment has almost given up on the possibility of the working class doing something. Like in Alabama, for example, they never even try to win elections and they just let the Republicans have the state. And I think it's really important that we saw when people stood up and fought back, they looked to the union. And they looked to the union in a multiracial way where white workers and black workers and immigrant workers tried to work together to take on the richest uh, richest billionaire in the world, Jeff Bezos, as we've talked about him a lot during this episode, and we should. If you count to 10, Jeff Bezos makes $22,000. Uh, that's unbelievable when you think about people who are trying to buy food, groceries, or their insulin. So I think it makes sense. And I think the whole campaign showed 
that people are very fed up with the way things are, that billionaires are making more money than they ever had before, while people are worried about not just whether or not they'll have a place to live or work, but they're worried about whether or not they can stay alive during the pandemic. People are pissed. And I think it's a real example of how social movements uh, can mobilize the working class into action. And that, unfortunately, um, that was one of the biggest drawbacks of the campaign, is that a lot of the the union leadership, they hesitated sometimes to sort of fully bring that critique into the union drive in a way that could have connected with workers. And so when you're fighting against a vicious anti-union campaign like uh, Amazon did wage against them, including breaking the law, putting up fake mailboxes, telling workers to vote early, and forcing them to go to meetings, you really can't play by the normal playbook. Uh, it's important to talk about clear political demands that you can organize around to have a class struggle approach and to organize the wider working class into action um, and to fight unapologetically for the needs of workers, for the union, to not shy away from the question of dues, etc. And I think that was one of the biggest drawbacks and in some ways Amazon workers who have been the, at the forefront of the struggle down there uh, and fought a heroic campaign ended up fighting to some extent with one hand tied behind their back and that's unfortunate. But since Alabama is a, a red state, meaning, you know, it's it's uh, run by the Republicans and Republicans support um, right to work, uh, which is anti-union le legislation. Is it safe to say, can we say that that's why they lost the union drive? Because most of the people vote Republican and they don't support unions? Well, that's what they tried to say because they wanted to dismiss the power of these workers. But, um, you know, the right to work comes from the South, and it was an effort to keep black and white workers divided. And I think there has been an attempt to sort of dismiss this as like the loss is because workers are somehow more reactionary or something like that. But to me, the opposite was true. These workers were ready to throw down and fight as hard as possible. Um, but it was true that there are weaknesses in the South. And one of the weaknesses is that the labor movement is starting from a very, very low place um, in terms of its confidence and ability to fight. But yeah, just to say that like it's a red state and that's why they lost, um, you know, that wouldn't explain why they took up the fight in the first place, which I think was a fight that's historically necessary. I think it's a fight that you can see again in Seattle this year. It's absolutely essential that we mobilize everything to win because when you when you go up against Jeff Bezos, he's going to throw everything he can at you, including cheating. And that's what he did in Besmer. And that's what he'll do in Seattle again. Absolutely. And it's it's no surprise that these workers were organizing at you know, a time where, uh, as one of the organizers who came on the show said, uh, kept America going, made sure that America had Christmas, um, you know, during a pandemic, these workers were working in terrible conditions. Um, but I want to ask Eric, even though you weren't in Bessemer, I don't think, Eric, um, but uh, there was a, a, a huge aspect of um, sort of like a civil rights um, union drive in regards to um what was going on in Bessemer. Uh, what's your take on that? Did Black Lives Matter have an effect over um, why people wanted to unionize? Well, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't in Bessemer blame finals. Uh, it was, it showed the explosive combo that the ruling class of this country has absolutely feared, you know, since 400, 500 years. And that's the combination of the labor movement and the black liberation movement coming together and actually fighting for a multiracial working class movement. And that's what it showed. It was not an accident that Amazon just so happened to stumble along Bessemer and 
higher majority black workforce and also majority women workforce as well. Why? Because they know the ruling class calculus is that they can exploit these workers more, oppress these workers more, give them lower wages, and even though they get paid 15, it's a lower rate compared to the other factories and other work in the same state, in the same area. And it showed the reliance on the black workers. That Amazon, at the end of the day, is just like any other capitalist. They rely on cheap labor. And that means, ultimately, in this country, non-unionized labor. But that's the twist, is that black workers and the workers there have much more power and they begin to recognize that the same company, the same type of people that back law and order statements or phony phony progressive uh, identity politics type statements like Amazon saying therefore Black Lives Matter, but meanwhile forcing black workers in the early onset of the pandemic to go into work in Whole Foods and get COVID, they recognize that they can't rely on the bosses. They can't rely on the system to really fight for them at the end of the day. And I think that it's not an accident why at the end of the day that Amazon spent billions of dollars against the unionization effort because they recognize that danger. And I think at the end of the day that I think it was really important for especially the young people that are looking at this especially young black people, is that the fight for black liberation, the path towards that is the path of class struggle. That ever since Martin Luther King with the Poor People's Campaign and also the Detroit Revolutionary Union Movement that was black workers unionizing Chrysler factories after the Detroit Rebellion, which was also a multiracial rebellion against systemic racism and against police violence and against poverty, that we really have to make sure that we build a movement that can back up these Bessemer uh, Amazon workers and not abandon them just because the union drive failed this time because the struggle is not over. I totally agree, Eric. I mean, we can't, not only can we not abandon, but we can't give up. You know, we have to learn the lessons of, of uh, what people experienced in Bessemer, Alabama. So Chris, I'm gonna put you on the spot for a second. Since you were down there, you worked very closely with um, some of the, the workers and the union activists and the, the union itself. If you had to say what were the three key lessons um, to take from the union um, unionization drive uh, in Bessemer, what would they be? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think the, you, you raised the question of right to work earlier. And I think there is a, a debate taking place now about do labor laws need to change um, before you can organize unions? And, you know, was it impossible to organize Amazon because of right to work or because of the limitations of um, the National Labor Relations Board, which is like the government sort of oversight body over unions. And I think, um, I think that, you know, I think that, I think the lesson should be, A, uh, no matter what, Amazon will cheat. They already broke the laws that were on the books uh, and it's well documented and it's going into court, but Amazon's excited about fighting it out in court without a union uh, because they were able to win the election. But more importantly, I think it gets the kind of cart before the horse or the horse before the cart. I'm not sure. Um, you know, laws in this country, like where did labor laws come from in the U.S.? Uh, they came from militant class struggles like Eric was talking about in the 1930s and later on as well. And that, you know, class struggle shapes the legal system. And at a certain point, the ruling class needs to reply. 
And so I think it's like, um, like Amazon's going to cheat. And, you know, for example, there's a discussion opening up right now about the PRO Act. And just to be clear, the PRO Act would be a major, major sea change in the way that a labor law is written and dealt with. And I think, it, you know, it would open a lot of doors for unions. But it doesn't mean that Amazon won't cheat, that they won't threaten people's jobs, that they won't lie to them, um, and that they won't scare them in times of the pandemic to vote against the union. And that's what they did very effectively. I think the other lessons uh, that were really important in Bessemer is that, you know, as Marxists, but I, I think many more working class fighters beyond Marxists understand that the key force that you need to take on um, a beast like Amazon is the, the workers themselves. And that they're the ones who understand on the shop floor what the conditions are, how to talk to their coworkers, what the different moods and consciousness are, and how most effectively to fight back. And I think um, that was a drawback where because of the way the union went about organizing the campaign, sometimes Amazon workers were more, at, in Besmer, were more like spokespeople than they were um, immediately, intimately leading up every aspect of the drive. And I mean, that's not a good way to go about it. But more importantly, that sort of has you, again, fighting with one hand behind your back. And in a fight against Jeff Bezos, um, you want to be able to mobilize everything. And just the last thing I'd say is I think, um, you know, when we talk about a, a union drive is a can be a specific thing where you win a contract, hopefully, at the end of it. But I think what unions represent is a basic way working class people can defend themselves against the ruling class. That's what they've represented for hundreds of, hundreds of years, and that's what they will represent in the future. And so I think, um, you know, there's a lot of debate about, like, can unions do this or can they not do this? Uh, do we need a new form of a labor movement? And I think it is really important to think about that. Those aren't new questions for socialists who came up against these types of things. But I think we should point out that what union drives uh, and strikes represent is like a, it's like a, it's a, it's a piece of the broader class struggle. And I think the, the lessons of, you know, many successful uh, labor drives of taking on the ruling class, which by the way, Amazon's not the first like too big to fail uh, company that we've existed. You know, at some point, U.S. Steel, Eric mentioned Chrysler was unionized. Um, I think those lessons show that in order to take on one individual bahas, you have to take on the whole capitalist class as a whole. And to best do that, you need to mobilize the whole working class. And we were talking about Minneapolis. Obviously, in 1934 here, there was an example of that, where there was the uh, Trotskyists in Minneapolis led the Teamster strike. But the way they won the Teamster strike wasn't just by talking about voting yes for the union. It was mobilizing the full power of the working class through a general strike and even confronting the bosses, uh, police forces, and hired goons to win the union. And I think those lessons are just as true today as they were back then. So, Chris, it, it, it seems like you are optimistic about, um, you know, organizing new unions or, um, you know, reinvigorating the labor movement, you know, real quick before, uh, before you head out, do you think that we can beat Jeff Bezos? Well, I wouldn't be here if I didn't. Um, absolutely. I think we're beating Jeff Bezos. We've already beaten him in some ways in Seattle. We beat him with HQ2. Uh, around, the, around the world, there are Amazon strikes taking place. It's just that Jeff Bezos is strong. He has a lot of money and a lot of power and a lot of influence in these places. And so can Jeff, Be Je Jeff Bezos be beaten? I mean, I think it's when <laughs> will he be beaten? But in order to do that, we'll need to learn the lessons, not just from the Amazon Union Drive in Besmer, which is absolutely essential, but the lessons of the global struggle of the working class, which I think is absolutely, um, we need every tool we have. And what we have is an international experience, an international organization, 
um, and a wider class struggle that, of course, we can bring down Jeff Bezos and all of his billionaire buddies, just like many others were brought down in the past. I want to thank Chris and Eric for coming on the show. I'm going to keep Andy a little bit longer because I want to talk about the Shama Solidarity campaign. But thanks for coming on, guys, and see you again real soon. Yeah, thanks for having me, Toya. Uh, Yeah, see ya. Okay, Andy, I want to hear all about the Shama Solidarity campaign. Um, I mean, Shama herself, um, you know, built along with Socialist Alternative, of course, uh, a campaign to tax um, Amazon to build affordable housing in Seattle. Um, And of course, the ruling class, um, Jeff Bezos and all his billionaire buddies that live in the state of Washington um, were very upset uh, to have to pay taxes because they don't. Um, And so I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of an update on the campaign. We haven't talked about it in a while um, here on World to Win. So what's going on in Seattle? Yeah, I mean, Bezos and buddies are are really upset about the tax Amazon movement, which is what the third charge is related to um, against uh, Shama, right? And uh, they're upset because of the victory that we achieved there and the movement that we built. Um, And in fact, you know, many of, just like in 2019, many of uh, senior Amazon executives have now donated to the recall campaign, including uh, Jeff Bezos' elite kind of like, uh, core of people around him called the S team. A number of their executives have donated. And what's happened since we last talked about it really is that the ruling um, has been upheld, right? The the Washington State Supreme Court ruled in early April that uh, three of the original four charges that were levied against Shama uh, would go forward. And part of, you know, they chose to stand with the right-wing recall on these issues despite the fact that the, the, the recall charges are not actually true. And part of that is because that in Washington State, the recall laws are really undemocratically written. They don't actually have to be true to be able to be put on the ballot. I mean, it's just ludicrous when you think about that. Um, and so they're going forward, and the recall campaign has begun collecting. They have to collect around a little less than 11,000 uh, signatures of voters in Seattle to put that on the ballot. So that's what they've been doing right now. And what we've been doing is building up our movement um, to get the truth out about these charges and talk about what is actually happening here, which is uh, this right-wing and corporate-backed recall attempting to criminalize the right to protest, attempting to push back um, on our movements and what we've won uh, through uh, Council Member Sawant's office and her helping our, her using her office to help build these movements to send a clear message that um, they are trying to reestablish the status quo. And this is not about, like they say, Shama having broke the law. Of course, that is an old talking point. Um, you know, that was used against uh, the civil rights movement as well as this point that they've tried to use of the Shama's campaign, the Solidarity campaign, and her support is just, a, you know, held up by outside agitators when, in fact, you know, time and again, Seattleites in District 3 in Shama's home district have re-elected her and that this is an attempt to undo that 2019 election undemocratically. So we've been building up our support. We now have 16 union endorsements to the recall campaign's none, so that's really good. Um, and at the same time, we're trying to keep pace with their corporate fundraising. They've raised almost half a million dollars in, uh, you know, dark corporate money. And so we're doing really well to keep up with that. 
um, but also building our own kind of like door knocking uh, apparatus and trying to get out and talk to voters and, and workers in uh, District 3 in Seattle about what's uh, the need to keep Shama in office. And at the same time, you know, as a true workers' representative, Shama's council office is not just playing the defensive, but is going on the offensive for working people, right? Um, we The Shama's office has introduced new rent control legislation to try and fight for rent control and COVID relief um, for working, working renters at small businesses in Seattle, amongst many other things that uh, the office has been fighting for at the same time trying to defend against this right-wing recall. And I think that speaks to the essence of, of what it means to be accountable to working people um, doing that despite facing this big onslaught of the right wing and uh, large corporations. Now, when you say that the Shama um, Solidarity campaign is trying to keep up with this, you know, dark corporate money, um, Shama's campaign is not doing that with corporate money. Shama's campaign is doing that with working class people's money. Um, so if someone is uh, watching this YouTube show or listening to this podcast and they don't live in Seattle, can they um, financially contribute to the campaign to, to help defend her seat? Absolutely, 100%. You know, this campaign, just like all good campaigns, I think, that are run in the interest of working people, has a really inspiring effect. You know, what we've been able to do in Seattle with Shama's council office has an inspiring effect to workers around the country. You know, we've had, uh, they try and knock it, you know, the corporate right-wing interest that back the recall try and knock it, uh, knock us for it. But we're really proud that, you know, we're getting donations from, you know, mail carriers in Minneapolis or, you know, bus drivers in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, or, you know, grocery workers in North Carolina. We stand proud of that. $50 from those workers, I would rather have that any day than all the money that the recall campaign is getting from Amazon executives, real estate lobbyists, and slumlords, all of which are on their uh, donations list, even if they live in Seattle, right? Um, I think this is a campaign, and this campaign and what we've done uh, over the years that Shama's held this office is a very powerful example to working class people nationally and internationally. And that's why they're inspired to donate. And I'll take that money every day and defend it on every single door. That's what we're all about. Absolutely. And just my last question, Andy, you know, the work of, of uh, Shama's council office has uh, sparked movements across the country, especially in regards to the fight for 15, um, things like rent control, paid parental leave. Um, but internationally, you know, we do have a, a, a people who watch our show from around the world. Why should people around the world care about what happens in Seattle, Washington, in the U.S.? Yeah, well, I mean, you spoke to like how much importance this has had nationally over the years and internationally, too. I think it's been a bit of a uh, a really or a really, uh, how do you put it, uh, inspiring thing as well to see how, you know, like a principled Marxist, uh, a socialist in, in only one seat in one city council in a major U.S. city can have an impact on uh, the class struggle in the United States, which the U.S. obviously is, it's a certain sense is still the big belly of the beast in terms of um, imperialist influence on other countries around the world. And being able to use our position in Seattle to kind of give confidence to movements of workers and um, workers and poor people around the world is important. Like. And Shama's been able to use her office not just to do things like Fight for 15 and all these important things we've won uh, for Seattle and uh, that have inspired other movements around the U.S., but also, you know, has been a very important, has passed a number of um, 
a number of statements, a number of resolutions uh, supporting struggles of workers and poor people around the world. You know, just even in the last year, you know, uh, resolutions against the the citizenship laws uh, put forward by the Modi government in India. Uh, just yesterday, actually putting forward a, a resolution in solidarity um, with uh, you know the workers and oppressed in Israel Palestine against the war that's going on there, uh, putting that forward. And also, you know, most recently and you know, ended up, you know, we don't, we have a sense of proportion, but I, you know, can help to contribute to the fact, uh, putting for a resolution to call on Joe Biden and the Biden administration to lift, um, patent restrictions on COVID vaccines and, and to, you know, around the TRIPS waiver so that vaccines could be produced, uh, generically in countries around the world. Um, and so, you know, I think all of those things are just a few examples of how we've been able to use this one little office to actually hold up worker struggle around the world and really have an impact. You know, we've gotten solidarity statements even in the last uh, few days from different forces ar ar around the world expressing solidarity with the um, – the, our defense campaign against the right-wing recall because of how important this is to them, right? We, Quebec Solidaire in Quebec, um, you know, passed a, a, passed a, a resolution recently in favor of this. We've had, uh, you know, interviews in German left newspapers that are interested in this because workers and young people around the world uh, see the importance of this seat so much. Andy, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show here today. And anyone who is, um, in the United States, uh, please consider donating to the Shama Solidarity Campaign. You can find um, it in the link below. All right. Thanks, Toya. Thanks, everybody, for having me. Uh, it's good to be here. What an exciting episode we had today, but now we're going to go to the shout out of the week. Um, and we are shouting out the international solidarity protests on May 31st. So on Monday, May 31st, the former left legislator Longhair um, and 46 other defendants will stand in trial in Hong Kong for inciting subversion of state power. If they're found guilty, the maximum penalty is life imprisonment. Um, and, you know, with this uh, trial, the Chinese regime has rounded up almost all the opposition leaders and they and proposed candidates from across the spectrum of anti-government um, politics, including trade unionists, um, which we've discussed today is extremely important, pro-Western liberals and right-wing localists. So under the new political system in Hong Kong, four-fifths of the legislative council seats will be appointed by a CCP-controlled committee um, or by business groups. And all the candidates will first be screened by secret police to ensure that only patriots run. Um, this is absolutely horrendous. Um, and so solidarity against repression in China and Hong Kong um, and the International Socialist Alternative uh, will be organizing solidarity protests around the world um, tomorrow, May 31st, um, or in a few days following. Um, and so what we're demanding is the scrapping of Hong Kong's national security law um, and the release of political prisoners. Um, and we're also fighting to rebuild mass revolutionary struggles against the dictatorship and to spread the struggle to China, linking this with the struggle against capitalism and imperialism. Um, and so 
you can follow the solidarity against repression in, in China and Hong Kong on social media um, so you can stay up to date with the campaign. Um, so I want to thank everyone for watching our show today. If you are going to a protest tomorrow, please let us know in the comments. And next week, I can't wait to see, um, you know, what everyone did um, and make sure you uh, follow the solidarity against repression in China and Hong Kong on social media. I want to thank everyone uh, who joined us here today. Remember, you can subscribe to us through podcasts now um, and make sure you like and comment on this video. This is World to Win. Every Sunday, we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast-moving global events from a socialist perspective. Subscribe to the International Socialist Alternatives YouTube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. When they fight, when they fight, when they fight, solidarity.